All right, we're going to be in James chapter 2 this morning, and I guess this will serve as my disclaimer. I don't know what this is exactly, but um, so as a preacher, I don't want to just like, we open the Bible and I tell you what it says. You don't need me to do that or explain things. Uh, Maybe that's helpful sometimes. Um, A big part of preaching, I think, is not only telling you what the text says, but we want to experience the text. Let me, let me put that in another way. We want to do what the text is doing. Um, there are sermons in the Bible. There are prophecies. There, there are parables, these stories. There are songs. There are proverbs. The original people that received that sermon or that letter, how would that have made them feel? What, what would that word from God have done to them? Um, There are certainly scriptures that are um, encouraging, inspiring, um, joyful, uh, challenging, confrontational, uh, mournful, um, all kinds of passages. So um, what would it have done? And this morning as we go through James chapter 2, those folks that received that letter, it was for them, okay, from James. How would they have experienced this? What would this text have done to them? And hopefully, and this is my prayer, hopefully the Holy Spirit will do that with us this morning. So here we go. James chapter 2. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes, expensive jewelry, driving a Lexus. Okay, that was mine. Um, Another comes in poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, "Um, why don't you stand over there or why don't you sit on the floor? Um, Well, doesn't that discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor? Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you? Isn't it the rich who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the Scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not murder, uh, sorry, I got those out of order, you must not commit adultery. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others, 
But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Everybody judges. Every single one of us, we judge. You do it, I do it, everyone does it. The question is not whether or not you make these judgments about people. The question James raises is rather how. How do you make judgments about people? And so James wants us to very honestly, ruthlessly, I think, look inside our own hearts and, and, and ponder that. How do I judge? Do, do I use a measurement of mercy and grace and acceptance? Or do I use measurements of criticism and blame? when I judge others. Now there are, as you know, we all know, a lot of different criteria, a lot of different ways that people are discriminated against or that we make judgments about other people. James is talking about the measuring stick of wealth, of money. We do that. And we know that very well in our culture that people who have money get the preferential treatment. Why? Well, those people are the ones that might be able to help us out down the road somewhere. They might, they might be able to do us a solid at some point. Get us a job, get us a promotion, give us a reference. Let us use their vacation home in Aspen. I don't know. Why do the rich people get preferential treatment? Because they're us. We're the rich people. I mean, chances are, if you live in North Dallas, you are among the 5% of the richest people on the planet. And so we give them treatment because they're special treatment. They're like us. What about academic discrimination? You know... Um, did you go to college or, oh, you didn't go to college? Or which college did you go to? Discrimination based on that happens. Discrimination based on gender happens. Discrimination, age discrimination happens. Uh, racial discrimination. Man, I just shake my head over that. I mean, sadly, here's, we live in a country that is now twice elected an African-American for president, but I think we would all agree the race question is as much of an issue now as it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It still is dividing people. Religious discrimination. We live in a country, thank God, where our right to worship is protected by the Constitution. But don't build that mosque in my neighborhood. We don't want you people in our neighborhood So we judge. We judge. And that, James tells us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that is a real problem. Because, as he says in verse 4, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? So, here are two kind of different ways, especially using this economic 
um, filter or, or judging system that James talks about. Here are different, uh, two different gold standards of judging. The first, let's call it the rule of gold. This is on your outline this morning. The rule of gold goes like this. He who has the gold sets the rules. We know that one, man. I mean, that's the world we live in, right? Um, and, that's not, and James is talking about this in the first century. This was his world too. Not much has changed. He who has the gold sets. They're the ones that get the preferential treatment. They're the ones that get the best seats. They're the ones that get the upgrades. They're the ones that get treated like royalty. The ones that don't have the gold, they're not that important. Now, we may not say that, but we certainly in our culture behave that way. What they have to say, what they think is not all that important. Honestly, I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to be poor. Some of you do, by the way. Some of you have been homeless. Some of you are experiencing great financial difficulty right now. Most of us do not know what it's like, though, to be truly poor. You can go to Guatemala. You can go on a mission trip to a third world country. By the way, I love that. That's great. But that doesn't mean you know what it's like to be poor. Just because you've seen somebody who's, whose family lives in a garbage dump doesn't mean that you know what it's like to be there. I know there's really cool ministries that let you have like a homeless experience where you like spend a week. You know, they only give you like five bucks and, and you sleep under the bridge and you live as if you're homeless for a week. I think that's wonderful. I think that could really shape how you view things and notice people that you didn't notice before, but that doesn't mean you know what it's like to be poor. Because hmm. I'm sure that entire week you're thinking, can't wait to get back to my bed and my car and my phone and my three-plus meals a day and my Starbucks. I don't know what it's like to be poor. I'm guessing you don't know what it's like to be poor either. So maybe this will help. 2014, Oxford University Press published a book called The Locust Effect by Gary Haugen, Victor Boutros, very interesting, exploring what it's like to live under bondage to poverty. Now, they were talking specifically about growing up or living your, your life in the developing world, but I think the image they portray, I think it speaks to what it's like to be poor in America as well. So I'll just read a little bit about what they wrote. They said to visualize, and, and the, the example they're going to use is like the justice system, how that works for you. So they said to visualize the way public justice systems in the developing world work for hundreds of millions of the world's poorest people, I find myself thinking about the old broken down truck that has always sat rusting and decomposing amidst the weeds in the back corner of my grandfather's raspberry farm when I was a kid. If you had asked him if he had a truck, he would have said, sure. And he could point to things on the truck called an engine or tires or steering wheel. But if you asked him if it worked, he'd smile slightly over the absurdity and say, oh no, no one's driven that truck in decades. No raspberries have been hauled to the market. No supplies have been moved. In fact, he would probably say, I best not go near it. It's just now a hideout for snakes and spiders. 
Likewise, they write, for the great mass of poor people in the developing world, if asked about the public justice system, they could probably point to things in their country called police and courts and laws and lawyers, but these things are as useful to them or are useful to them in the same way the truck was to my grandpa. And that is not at all. Just as my family had no experience of anyone ever making use of grandpa's truck for trucking, the poor in the developing world have no life experience of the justice system being a useful source of justice for them. In fact, they write, police, courts, laws, and lawyers have become like the rusty truck in the weeds, mysterious at best and dangerous at worst. So this is the gold standard we know so well, the rule of gold. He who has the gold sets the rules. One of the most common ways that we judge who is to be honored, who is to be respected, who is to be listened to, who is to be treated preferentially is what are they worth? Then there's the other gold standard, the one that Jesus gave us. As James calls this one the royal law. And it goes like this. The golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, you remember that one time Jesus was asked, so, okay, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, tell me more about that. Who is my neighbor? <laughs> remember that one? Ooh, that was a doozy. He told that story. Remember that? He said... Let me give you an example of your neighbor and neighborliness in general. And the example he used, which quite purposely, purposefully would have shocked and offended and upset everyone in his audience, was the example of the Samaritan. The good Samaritan as we know him, who would have been totally unlike any of them. They would never have rubbed elbows with this person. They would never have broken bread with him, gone out to Chili's for lunch with this person. He was a bad guy. He's a Samaritan, right? And yet Jesus chooses this Samaritan as this is the neighbor. This is the neighbor. And I wonder if Jesus was like physically here today. Jesus, retell that story. The story of the Good Samaritan. Who would his neighbor be in our context? Who would Jesus choose as neighbor that would offend us in the way his original audience would have been offended? Your neighbor's the Muslim. That's what a neighbor is like. That's who you're supposed to love as yourself. Your neighbor is, is the gay man or, or the gay woman at work. That's that's what a neighbor is like. Your neighbor is that 
Latino in your community who you probably don't even really see, who's mowing yards and trimming bushes, who is probably here illegally, doesn't make minimum wage, and has to scrap and claw to put food on the table for his family. That's your neighbor. I wonder who Jesus would choose as our neighbor today. Who is my neighbor? Who is my brother? Who, who am I supposed to love? Who am I supposed to notice? Who am I supposed to serve? Who? Let's watch this video, find out a little more about that, and then we'll continue in James chapter 2. So the gospel wants us to see how much God cherishes every person. How that in God's eyes, all these distinctions and games and discriminations and prejudices, in God's eyes, everybody matters. Everybody counts. Everybody's important. And the Christians, Christians that James is writing to here in James chapter 2 had this, had this problem, this big problem. What they professed about their faith in Christ was incompatible with the way they were treating people who were different. He says in, in verse 1, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? And so I come preaching this morning with fear and trepidation because I know that James is writing to me. I know that when James is speaking here, he's dealing with something that I need to deal with and that we need to deal with. So let's walk through what James says about overcoming discrimination, about overcoming these preferential ways that we deal with other people if we're serious about what we say about Jesus. If we're serious about calling Him Lord, let's see what that looks like this morning. Well, for starters, no big surprise here, it looks like a command, okay? <laughs> because it is. So we have, from James, we have this holy command. Number one, I am commanded to reject favoritism and discrimination, all right? Um, if I claim Jesus, if I'm claiming Jesus as my Lord, then I'm commanded not to show favoritism. The Master says that is wrong to discriminate. Uh, people are made in the image of God, right? As believers, we can see this. We know this. Um, people are image bearers of God. Whatever they look like, wherever they're from, whatever they believe, people are made in the image of God. They carry this inherent worth with them wherever they go. Beyond that, the Son of God died for each and every person, whether or not they believe in Him, whether or not they accept Him, whether or not they honor Christ, He chose to die for them. So everybody has this value, right? Now, just a thought question. If you're not a believer, and that's okay, that's where you're at and everything. If you're not a believer, maybe you're even an atheist, um, antagonistic toward belief. I just want you to think about something, and that is... We all recognize that discrimination is a bad thing, okay? It's wrong. But if you don't believe in God, why? 
Why is it wrong? I mean, since the beginning of time, people have been dividing up according to race and class and uh, political orientation and stuff like that. So why is discrimination wrong? Why is prejudice wrong? It's just the way the world is. I mean, as a believer, look, I know why it's wrong. Everybody's made in the image of God. Everybody has value. Jesus died for everybody. But if you're not, why? Why would you say that's wrong? I just don't think there's a, a good reason, a good explanation for that. Because some philosopher says it's wrong. Because things work better if there's no discrimination. I, I mean, what's the, what? God loves every person. His son died for every person. Every tribe, every nation is going to be represented in heaven. People a lot different from me and from, from you, all sorts of different people are going to be worshiping God in heaven. That's the image that we have in the Revelation, right? We know why they matter. So there's this command in verse 1, my, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Holy command. Beyond that, there's a humble confession that's required. This is number two, a humble confession. The sickness of prejudice, it's not just out there. It's in my own heart. I regularly play favorites and make judgments about people in ways that are ungodly, as James would say, are driven by evil motives. Okay? That's ungodly. So James basically I think he calls me out. I think he calls us out on this in verse 4 when he says, quote, Have you not discriminated? So James is saying, I'm not talking to them over there. I'm not talking to that group. I'm talking to you. Have you not discriminated? Answer, yes, I have. Answer, yes, I do from time to time. So I think it's a good thing. I really do. Public sphere, civil discourse, talk about these kinds of things, prejudices and discrimination and equal treatment under the law and all of these conversations need to happen. Ferguson, Missouri got people talking. Black Lives Matter got people talking. Um, you know, ban all the Muslims. That certainly got people talking about this sort of stuff. I mean, these conversations are popping up. The Oscars, right? I mean, this stuff is popping up all the time. And that's good. That's good. We can disagree, we can debate, we can have passionate opinions about things, but let's not think the problem is over there. James is saying, no, the problem, have you not discriminated? The problem is here. Be humble enough to recognize that, I think James is asking us to do. So, public, it, by the way, these public, the civil discourse and all this stuff is not very civil, is it? Isn't it interesting how even when we are having serious conversations about this stuff, how ugly it gets? <laughs> Can't even talk about this stuff without people getting divided up into different camps. Truth is, the sickness of prejudice isn't just out there. It's in my own heart. I regularly play favorites, make judgments about people in ways that are ungodly. So we have this holy command. We have this humble confession of the gap between that and where we're at. What we also have is a new concern. 
a calling to a new concern. I value, number three, I value those different from me because I know God does. And that's what James points out to us, right? I know God values them. Verse 5 from the message, listen, dear friends, isn't it clear now that God operates quite differently? He chose the world's down and out as the kingdom's first citizens. They're sitting in first class, full rights and privileges. Isn't it clear, James says, that that's how God operates? So there's this concern. I'm valuing. I'm honoring those who are different. It doesn't mean I'm endorsing everything that they do. It doesn't mean I endorse every view or opinion that they have. It does mean that I treat them with love and respect because God made them and Jesus died for them. Years back, I heard a church leader from... um, a city, an American city. And this church leader was sharing a story about something their church did that he was, he was real proud about. Um, thought it was real exciting and beautiful what they did. But they, they had been in this urban center. And he was, a, he was a white guy. Well off. His church was white and well off. Um, the neighborhood that they had been in for years and years in their city was becoming increasingly less white and increasingly less well-off. And so he shared that their leadership made this, made this beautiful decision to donate their property and their building to a predominantly African-American congregation while they moved out into the suburbs. I didn't feel like that was anything to be proud about. I'm not here to rip that decision. or It just didn't feel, it didn't make me feel good. Because I just started thinking, what if they, as a leadership, had decided, we're staying right here, and let's, from this point forward, be intentional be sacrificial, make decisions that integrate this church socioeconomically, racially, from our eldership down to everybody. And what if we become this mosaic racially, this mosaic socioeconomically right here in the middle of our city? I just kept thinking, which would be the greater testimony to the power of the gospel? Moving to the burbs, we're staying and becoming this mosaic. Well, the gospel calls us not just to do different kinds of things, but the gospel calls us to be a different people, right? Um, it's easy, for example, to view the poor as being a project, right? Have all these ideas and helpful things that we do to help them out, but the poor, to kind of view them as a project. Um, The other way to view the poor would be as, frankly, as a problem. You know, avoid that neighborhood. Don't go get gas at that corner at that hour of the night. That's a bad neighborhood. (laughs) Um, And so so projects, projects are completed 
problems are either solved or oftentimes they're just avoided. But the gospel says, hang on. They're not projects. They're not problems. They're people. And people... People are loved. Right? People are known and are loved. And I'm thrilled with all that we're doing here as a congregation. Um, just amazing growth over the last two or three years in terms of urban ministry. Let's do more. Let's do more and more. More than that, um, I really love watching. We get to watch firsthand John Scott um, Gary Cohorn, who's our singles minister, also is leading our urban ministries. I love getting to see not just all the work that he does, hours every week of work, and he doesn't want me talking about this, I'm sure, and he's embarrassed and all that, but just put up with it, Gary. Um, so I enjoy getting to watch that, but mostly I enjoy seeing how he sees the poor as people, as his friends. And he knows their names, spends time with them. Breaks bread with them. They aren't just projects. They aren't just problems. They're people. And people need to be loved. Finally, James chapter 2 gives us, number four, a revolutionary code of conduct. I mean, this, if any teaching of the New Testament is revolutionary, this is it. Putting myself in other people's shoes, I think less about what others can do for me, less about using people, basically, and more about what I can do to bless them. And nobody, this royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, nobody has ever improved on this. No philosopher, no system of ethics, uh, no one has improved on this in the last 2,000 years. Okay? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you need to treat people. Um, James quotes it. He says, if you really, verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, don't overthink that. Um, I've heard, you know, self-help preachers and, and teachings about what Jesus is really saying is you need to love yourself. No, that's not what Jesus is really saying. What Jesus is really saying is, you already do a good job of that. You've probably fed yourself this morning. I'm just going to guess, I think you've bathed this morning. Um, when it comes to your concerns, your feelings, your fears... Um, do you respect those? Yes, you do. And Jesus says, well, love your neighbor as yourself. Extend that courtesy. Extend that respect. Ex ex extend those charitable judgments to others that you extend to yourself. Show that concern for others. Now, you can't always imagine what it's like to be in their shoes, nor should you pretend or imagine that you can put yourself in their shoes, right? But you can show respect, treat them with dignity, and try to be a help. And that is revolutionary. 
more than anything we're going to do with the legal code in the United States or the court system or police officers or whatever. That's the revolution. Loving your neighbor as yourself. The gold standard we took on first was showing um, honor and respect to those who can help me out, right? Blessing those who I think might be able to bless me, which is essentially a way of using people. Um, Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's not kid ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. That second gold standard, that's pretty hard. Just being honest with you. That's pretty hard. It's beautiful. It's right. I've never heard anyone teach that's just, Jesus was just wrong on that. We shouldn't love our neighbor as ourselves. Never heard anybody say that. So it's, it's right, it's beautiful, but it's really hard, isn't it? And so you need to know something this morning, or consider this how Jesus loves you. How he went to Calvary and offered his life for you. Because that was the only way to make things right between you and God. That was the only way to make sure that you understood through his death, burial, and resurrection that the grave is not the end of your story. And by you and I experiencing that kind of selfless love we might be able to live the gospel out in our lives right here, right now, in this broken, messed up world. This morning, if you need to put on Christ as your Lord and Savior, be baptized into Him, what a perfect day to do that. Valentine's Day, accept Jesus' love for you this morning. Maybe this morning you just need prayers. We always open up a space where you can pray with your your family, your small group, Um, your connection class, or with me, or one of our shepherds, we invite you to respond to God and His love this morning as we stand together and worship.